we turn this evening in the Old Testament to the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 32. Recorded here in Deuteronomy 32 is a song of Moses, inspired song. We are going to read the first 36 verses of this song. Deuteronomy 32. Give ear, O ye heavens, and I will speak. And hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. My doctrine shall drop as the rain, my speech shall distill as the, as the dew, as the small rain upon the tender herb, and as the showers upon the grass. Because I will publish the name of the Lord, ascribe ye greatness unto our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. They have corrupted themselves. Their spot is not the spot of his children. They are a perverse and crooked generation. Do ye thus requite the Lord, O foolish people and unwise? Is not he thy father that hath bought thee? Hath he not made thee and established thee? Remember the days of old, consider the years of many generations. Ask thy father and he will show thee, thy elders and they will tell thee. When the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land and in the waste howling wilderness. He led him about. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. As an eagle stirreth up her nest, fluttereth over her young, Spreadeth abroad her wings, taketh them, beareth them on her wings. So the Lord alone did lead him, and there was no strange God with him. He made him ride on the high places of the earth, that he might eat the increase of the fields. And he made him to suck honey out of the rock, and oil out of the flinty rock, butter of kine and milk of sheep, with fat of lambs and the rams of the breed of Bashan and goats with the fat of kidneys of wheat, and thou didst drink the pure blood of the grape. But Jeshurun waxed fat and kicked. Thou art waxen fat, thou art grown thick, thou art covered with fatness. Then he forsook God which made him, and lightly esteemed the rock of his salvation. They provoked him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations provoked they him to anger. They sacrificed unto devils, not to God, to gods whom they knew not, to new gods that came newly up, whom your fathers feared not. Of the rock that begat thee, thou art unmindful, and hast forgotten God that formed thee. And when the Lord saw it, he abhorred them, because of the provoking of his sons and of his daughters, 
and he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be, for they are a very froward generation, children in whom is no faith. They have moved me to jealousy with that which is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their vanities, and I will move them to jealousy with those which are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. For a fire is kindled in mine anger, and shall burn unto the lowest hell, and shall consume the earth with her increase, and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. I will heap mischiefs upon them. I will spend mine arrows upon them. They shall be burnt with hunger, and devoured with burning heat, and with bitter destruction. I will also send the teeth of beasts upon them, with the poison of serpents of the dust. The sword without and terror within shall destroy both the young man and the virgin, the suckling also with the man of gray hairs. I said I would scatter them into corners. I would make the remembrance of them to cease from among men, were it not that I feared the wrath of the enemy, lest their adversaries should behave themselves strangely, and lest they should say, Our hand is high, and the Lord hath not done all this. For they are a nation void of counsel, neither is there any understanding in them. Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would consider their latter end. How should one chase a thousand, and two put ten thousand to flight, except their rock had sold them, and the Lord had shut them up? For their rock is not as our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges. For their vine is of the vine of Sodom, and of the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall, their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of dragons and the cruel venom of asps. Is not this laid up in store with me and sealed up among my treasures? To me belongeth vengeance and recompense. Their feet shall slide in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them make haste. For the Lord shall judge his people and repent himself for his servants when he seeth that their power is gone and there is none shut up or left. That last verse we read, verse 36 of Deuteronomy 32, is our text this evening. For the Lord shall judge his people and repent himself for his servants when he seeth that their power is gone and there is none shut up or left. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, the text that we consider this evening comes from a song that God gave Moses to compose. I found it interesting that the Bible at my desk in my study, as well as the one I use here in the pulpit, have titled this song, uh, Moses' Song of Joy. Taken as a whole, I find it difficult to consider this a song of joy. 
It might rather be titled a song of judgment, a song of protest against the waywardness of of the rebellious children of Israel. In the previous chapter, God had spoken to Moses about what would happen after Moses' death. And you remember how difficult had been Moses' life and ministry among this people? They had repeatedly shown themselves rebellious and hard-hearted. God had shown his tender care for them, faithfully providing for them day and night from the time of their deliverance out of the bondage of Egypt until the time he spoke these words to Moses. But he also had to chasten them severely, time and again, to deliver them from their own folly. And now God tells Moses that after his death, these children of Israel will rise up and go a-whoring after the gods of the strangers of the land, whither they go to be among them, and will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. That's verse 16 of the previous chapter. And then follows this. Then mine anger shall be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them. And I will hide my face from them, and they shall be devoured, and many evils and troubles shall fall upon them, so that they will say in that day, Are not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day, for all the evils which they shall have wrought, in that they are turned unto other gods. Now therefore, write ye this song for you, and teach it, the children of Israel, put it in their mouths, that this song may be a witness for me against the children of Israel. That was the occasion for this song of Moses hardly sounds appropriate to refer to this as Moses' song of joy, does it? Even though we didn't take the time to read the entire song, what you heard this morning was an extensive record to the sins of of the people over against God who had been so good to them. But there is joy to be found in this song. There is here the testimony of the greatness of Jehovah, his holiness and his justice, but also his faithfulness to his covenant. So Moses must begin this way. Give ear, O ye heavens, and I will speak. Hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. My doctrine shall drop as the rain. My speech shall distill as the dew as the small rain upon the tender herb and as the showers upon the grass, because I will publish the name of the Lord, Jehovah. Ascribe ye greatness unto our God. He is a rock. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are judgment, a God of truth and without iniquity, just and right, is he 
when we look upon him in the light of the promise, the promise of the coming Savior to save his people from their sins, then and only then we have joy in his doctrine that drops like a light rain upon the tender herb and like showers upon the grass, because this God, Jehovah, is the rock whose work is perfect. He had revealed that even through judgment as he gave his people the Ark of the Covenant to lead them. Yes, in that Ark, Moses had to place the tables of the law, as we learn in the previous chapter, and that for a witness against the people. The law testified against them, said God. But the cover of that ark was the atonement cover, the mercy seat where the blood of the lamb was sprinkled as a sign of the atonement that would be made in God's appointed time by the Lamb of God whom he would send to take away the sins of the world, of his people. That's the brief background of the text that we consider this evening on this last day of the year of our Lord, 2023. Once again, we hear Deuteronomy 32, verse 36. For the Lord shall judge his people and repent himself for his servants when he seeth that their power is gone and there is none shut up or left. The theme of this text is Jehovah's promise to the powerless. We notice, first of all, the calamity faced. Secondly, the only deliverance. And finally, the certainty of Jehovah's promise. The text speaks of a coming day when the power of his people is gone. It's a day of calamity. The day is spoken of in those terms in the previous verse. For the day of their calamity is at hand, and that things that shall come upon them Make haste. Many are the calamities of God's people. Many are the calamities that we have faced in this past year. The term calamity speaks of great distress. It speaks of a great burden. Sometimes in the Old Testament, It even describes times of destruction. But calamity can take on many different forms. We've experienced it in different ways. For some, it has come by the Lord removing through death a loved one. For others, it has come in the form of loved ones walking in ways of sin, consumed by the desire to walk their own way, even when it involves separation from those who have nurtured them and taught them the ways of God. For others, calamity has come by way of affliction, even ongoing affliction and difficult to bear. 
affliction that prevents them from doing what they normally had done in the past and what the, the activities that they would like to do. Calamity might come in the way of unexpected and unanticipated financial distress. It might come in the form of a wreck with serious injuries or being injured on the job. Sometimes calamities are of a rather brief duration, and sometimes they are long-lasting, even a lifetime. Calamity is a word in our vocabulary because we are children of Adam, men, women, and children who live with the consequences of the fall into sin, the wages of which is death, death in all its forms, everything that that word death entails. Sometimes we are led by God's providential hand into ways that are very difficult for us. Although we're not able to see it with our earthly eyes and understanding, he leads us into ways of calamity because his work is perfect. He has a purpose with us that he's accomplishing. Even in the pathway of our earthly sojourn, which leads us through calamity. He will reveal himself, the faithful covenant God, who abides with us his people, to show himself to us our Savior. A calamitous way is a way that we would never choose. Who would choose to suffer injury at the hands of a drunk driver? or an inattentive and careless driver? Who would choose to be stricken with a life-threatening illness or disease? Who would choose to suffer a child's rejection of his faithful upbringing under the gospel, let alone one whose hatred of his upbringing and family comes to intense expression? Who would choose the calamities that we have to bear? And yet the Spirit of Christ has given us faith to lay hold of him confessing, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are the called according to his purpose. Romans 8, verse 28. And we confess with the Apostle Paul in the same chapter, Romans 8, that not one of these calamities shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
but to understand the calamity set forth in Deuteronomy 32, we must understand the background against which this text is set forth. And that background is pointed to by the first word of our text, that little connecting word for. You see, there are calamities that we must face, the ways of distress through which God leads us, to use the words of 1 Peter 1 verse 7, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. There are trials that we face that are not to be attributed to any sin on our part, trials that serve God's purpose in saving us completely from the body of this death. Not every calamity that we face is the result of a particular sin in our lives. That was the misunderstanding of Jesus' disciples until he corrected them. We read in John 9 that when Jesus and his disciples walked by a man who had been blind from his birth, the disciples asked Jesus, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. He didn't mean by those words that the blind man had never sinned, nor his parents. He meant that the man's blindness was not a consequence of any particular sin in his life or in the life of his parents. Imagine the distress of those parents when that child was born and they soon realized that that child was blind. But that trial was to serve God's purpose years later in revealing Christ the Savior to them. There are indeed sins which we commit that have calamitous consequences. Perhaps, for example, we even see that our own parental failures and sins have contributed to the rebellion of a child. Perhaps the sin of drunkenness has borne consequences that are almost impossible to repair and that bring great distress into the penitent sinner's life. In such cases, we are called to look to our Savior by faith and find at the cross forgiveness in the humble recognition that the consequences that we bear are part of God's correction to humble us. But the calamities to which our text refers are calamities that were the direct result of Israel's long impenitence 
the result of their blatant ingratitude to God who had given them so much. You look again at the opening words of this chapter and you realize how much Jehovah had given his people. They deserve not the least of his blessing, nor do we. And his care for his people is found woven throughout the inspired words of this song of Moses. Verses 9 and 10, for example. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land and in the waste howling wilderness. He led him about. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. He gave them material riches, a little taste of the riches of that everlasting inheritance that awaited them in the promised Messiah, butter of kine, milk of sheep with fat of lambs and rams of the breed of Bashan and goats with the fat of kidneys of wheat and thou didst drink the pure blood of the grape. But Jeshurun waxed fat, and kicked. Let me say something a moment about that name Jeshurun. That name is given Israel only in this chapter and the next. It means the upright one, referring to what Israel was to be. In relationship to the law, Israel was to be Jeshurun, the upright one, That was to be her relationship to God and for all that God had given her in his word, that was to be the testimony to the world too. Israel was to bear the name Jeshurun. But Jeshurun waxed fat and kicked. He kicked at God's word. At the doctrine that had dropped as the rain that fell as that gently falling rain to replenish the earth with the water of life. But Jeshurun waxed fat and kicked. Thou art waxen fat, thou art grown thick, thou art covered with fatness. Then he forsook God which made him and lightly esteemed the rock of his salvation. And as if that were not enough to call forth the judgment of God, they provoked him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations provoked they him to anger. They sacrificed unto devils and not to God, to gods whom they knew not, to new gods that came newly up whom your fathers feared not, Of the rock that begat thee, thou art unmindful and hast forgotten God that formed thee. And that exposed the root of their abomination. It was ingratitude to God. Sin is the lowest form of ingratitude. We owe him everything. He has revealed himself not only as our creator, but as our father. Ought we not regard him as such and glorify him? 
Ought we not love him for who he is and what he has done for us? But Israel did not. And thus the greatest calamities fell upon them. I won't recount the calamities set forth in verses 19 through 35, but verse 20 reveals the essence of their calamity when God said, I will hide my face from them. Is there anything more terrible than that God, the giver of every good and perfect gift, hide his face from you? All the judgments that fell upon the children of Israel were but expressions and confirmations of Jehovah hiding his face from them. And these calamities left the children of Israel without strength. In the words of our text, the Lord seeth that their power is gone. Quite literally, their hand has disappeared. It's been amputated. They could do nothing to deliver themselves from their enemy, from their calamity. None of their riches could help them. None of their pleasures could cheer them up. All the deceitful ploys of Satan to give them fun had come up empty. And they, that is, Jehovah's believing people who had grieved the waywardness of Israel had come to the realization that there was none to deliver them. In the face of such calamity, the consequences of Israel's repeated rebellion and the expression of the Lord's recompense and vengeance, only Jehovah himself can give deliverance. Only Jehovah himself can give deliverance to us in our calamities and to the church, though she is tried severely. We know that Israel in the Old Testament was the Old Testament manifestation of God's church. We also know that the sins repeatedly seen in the Old Testament church are sins that plague the church in the New Testament. Even if those sins take on different forms, the sinful flesh that came to expression in the terrible sins confronted here in Deuteronomy 32 is the same sinful flesh that we bear and against which we have to battle constantly. We also confess with Isaiah 1 verse 9, except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. We can study the history of the church and we ought to do that. There's nothing new under the sun. If we do not study history, and particularly the history of the church, we will foolishly commit the same sins as have been exposed 
historically. Our young adults and others who have been studying the canons of Dort have seen that many of the errors of the remonstrants in the late 16th and early 17th centuries were only a repetition of the Pelagian heresies from the late 4th and early 5th century. And many of the errors seen in the church today are rooted in the ancient heresy of Gnosticism as well as the errors of mysticism. And when the Lord, by the example of the seven churches given us in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, has given us the warning of removing the candlestick from those who are unfaithful to his word, except they repent, we realize that word is true. We have seen churches, even those whose roots were in the Protestant Reformation, not just the Lutheran branch, but the Reformed branch of the Reformation, whose candlesticks have been removed, whose light, the light where the light of the gospel no longer shines forth. And not only so, we ourselves have experienced the chastening hand of God and been humbled by him. We have faced calamities only to be brought to the realization anew that our deliverance rests only upon Jehovah our God. He alone is strong enough to guide us safely through the distresses of controversy and the calamities sometimes brought upon us by our own sins. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 36, Jehovah's promise comes in this form. For the Lord will judge his people. Now when we read that, we probably immediately think of a text such as 1 Peter 4 verse 17. For time, the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of those who obey not the gospel of God? There that judgment clearly refers to a judicial act of God as the righteous judge. And we might assume, given the context in Deuteronomy 32 of the condemnation that is pronounced, that the statement, the Lord shall judge his people, refers to the same kind of legal pronouncement. But the term used here speaks of bringing deliverance by executing justice. The idea is the same as that of the judges which God raised up during that period following the death of Moses. And you have a specific example of what is meant here when you look at Psalm 10, Verses 17 and 18, another place where calamity is faced in a specific way. There we read, Lord, thou hast heard the desire of the humble. 
Thou wilt prepare their heart. Thou wilt cause thine ear to hear, to judge the fatherless and the oppressed, that the man of the earth may no more oppress. To the orphans, to the oppressed, who have no one to defend them or their position in the earth, Jehovah says he himself will defend them. So in our text, when we read the Lord shall judge his people, the idea is that he will act on their behalf to deliver them from that hopeless situation in which they have seen that they are powerless. And that's confirmed by what follows. For we are told not only that the Lord shall judge his people, but also this, and repent himself for his servants, when he seeth that their power is gone, and there is none shut up or left. That concept of the Lord repenting himself is a concept we must be careful not to misinterpret. For us... Repentance speaks literally of a change of the mind. That, in fact, is the chief New Testament term for repentance, metanoia, a change of the mind. And it's a change of the mind from seeking our own will and lust to subjecting our thoughts to the word and will of God. From that change of the mind necessarily follows a change of behavior, a doing according to the will of God, what our Heidelberg Catechism refers to as a putting off of the old man and a putting on of the new man in Christ Jesus. But the Bible very clearly teaches God is unchangeable. His very name, Jehovah, emphasizes that truth. I am. I am. You and I can never say that. Not one of us can say that. Because we are constantly changing. Getting older moment by moment bearing in our bodies the motions of sin and death. But God has revealed himself by the name Jehovah, by which he reveals his unchangeable faithfulness to his covenant. So what is meant by the Lord repenting himself for his servant? The word literally speaks of being moved to compassion. So that the idea is the same expressed by Jeremiah in his lamentations for the calamities of Israel at the time leading up to the Babylonian captivity. Calamities which also came about as consequences of their sin. He wrote in Lamentations 3, verse 22, it is of the Lord's mercies 
that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. And he then expands upon that truth in Lamentations 3, verses 31 and 32. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, yet will he have compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. When his people see that their power is gone, that there is none shut up or left, the idea being there, there is none enclosed or left within the protection of their inheritance in the promised land, but they realize their devastating condition apart from God, then the Lord will reveal his compassion and bring the deliverance which he alone can provide. This compassion upon his people, this deliverance of them, is a promise fulfilled in the Messiah, God sending his only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. The promise of this text is a promise repeatedly affirmed throughout the Old Testament as the revelation of the coming Messiah was more clearly revealed through the various types and shadows and God's work in his church throughout history. God brought deliverance when he saw that the power of his people was gone and even Moses could not lead them into the promised land. God raised up Joshua, whose name meant the same as Jesus, Jehovah saves. Joshua led God's people across the Jordan into the promised rest. Oh, but we see that in Joshua 1, it wasn't really Joshua who led the people across the Jordan. The old, it was the Ark of the Covenant. The Old Testament representation of Jehovah's presence with his people in the Christ who was to come. Joshua led the people as the type of Jesus, affirmed in Hebrews chapter 4, where we are told, For if Joshua had given them rest, then would he not have afterward have spoken of another day? There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God, the rest that Jesus himself will bring according to this promise in Deuteronomy 32, verse 36. The same promise was affirmed after Israel again fell into the depths of their departure from God and his word, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. God laid heavy chastisements upon them for years until he brought them to repentance, to the realization that deliverance would come only by him. So he raised up judges. The same affirmation of the promise 
came later when God delivered them by raising up David and Solomon, types of the king of kings and the prince of peace. Such is the history of the Old Testament, preserved for us, a history which always reveals and affirmed the promise proclaimed in the Old Testament, that of the coming Messiah. And ultimately, when Israel again reached the depths and all appeared to be lost, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. The certainty of Jehovah's promise is also set before us for our comfort in this text. The Lord shall judge his people and understood the Lord shall repent himself, show compassion for his servants. There's no question about it. His word is sure. The same history is repeated in the New Testament age. Jehovah always showing himself faithful, gathering, defending, and preserving his church, even in the darkest times. As we stand at the end of another year, we can look back and see Jehovah's abiding faithfulness. As we stand together with Christ in that relationship established by God through faith, we hear his words, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We see his wonder work of grace throughout the history of the church in the New Testament era, a church often in the depths, but a church preserved and strengthened, saved by the mighty hand of him whose word is, for the Lord shall judge his people and repent himself for his servants, when he seeth that their power is gone, and there is none shut up or left. And what he does for his church, he also does for you who are members of his church in Christ. We've struggled in the face of many difficulties, and have sometimes found ourselves in great distress. But God has given us to see that our hope and the certainty of our deliverance is found only in him and in our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has overcome all sin and death and crushed the head of the serpent. These things are certain because the one who gives this promise establishes the promise by his own name, Jehovah. What a beautiful name by which God has revealed himself to us, his people in Christ, the one who has established his covenant with us, 
the one who has taken us in Christ Jesus into his own life and love, says, I am Jehovah. I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. That's Malachi 3, verse 6. Another affirmation of the text we've been considering this evening. Yes, you and I have no strength. But look to Jehovah in the face of Jesus Christ. Repent and believe and rejoice in the God of our salvation. Amen. Heavenly Father, as we close out this year, we do so rejoicing in Thee, the God of our salvation, as thou hast led us in the way of many calamities, thou hast also shown thyself faithful and dost continue to affirm thy promise to us by the proclamation of the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in whom we have life everlasting we thank thee and ask that thou wilt continue to sustain us and to strengthen us to thy name's honor and glory. For Jesus' sake, amen.